Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. My name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My favourite books, films and TV shows are mysteries, detective stories and psychological thrillers. As a psychologist, I've learned not to let the psychological inaccuracies that sometimes appear in these books spoil my fiction fun. But I had to do no such thing with Suzanne O'Sullivan's new book, The Sleeping Beauties. Although Suzanne writes non-fiction, her books are equally, if not more, fascinating and thrilling than any fiction book I've ever read. Suzanne is a detective of sorts who unravels real-life mysteries by delving deep into the brain and the human psyche. Suzanne is a neurologist who drew on her 20-year career seeing thousands of patients to write her first two books. Her first book, It's All in Your Head, won the Welcome Prize in 2016. Her second book, Brainstorm, explores the intricacies of the human brain through epilepsy and other seizures. Suzanne has a rare gift for insightful storytelling, which makes her third book, The Sleeping Beauties, a wonderful journey of discovery, both physically and metaphorically, as she explores some incredible, mysterious psychosomatic illnesses and mass hysteria. From children in Sweden who fall asleep for years, high school students in New York with contagious seizures and several embassy officials with headache and memory loss following assault by non-existent sonic weapons. The stories are absolutely fascinating. But what sets this book apart is the ease with which Suzanne lets the reader inside her own brain as she solves these mysteries and wrestles with her own prejudices and the failings of her chosen profession. So Suzanne O'Sullivan, I am so delighted and excited to have the opportunity to speak with you. Usually with my guests, when they've written a book, I like to leave reading the book as close as possible to the recording so that it's fresh in my head. The book is called um, Sleeping Beauties. Yes. And uh, it's very aptly named and it is a fantastic journey through the telling of various stories of unusual phenomenon that have occurred. It is the story in a way of the human condition of how society influences the human condition and the role in a way that Western medicine and other cultural aspects influence our behavior in certain times and in certain contexts. I found it absolutely fascinating. 
But first, what I would really like is if you could just tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up in the career you're in. And I don't mean that that sounds like a bad way. Oh, I ended up in this career, but how you came to be where you are and actually really what drove you to write this book. Yeah. So just my own background. Um, well, I'm from Dublin and um, I studied medicine in Trinity and I am now a neurologist at the National Hospital of Neurology in the UK. Now, how did I end up there is, is really, you know, it wasn't, I think a lot of people like to think that doctors, you know, have a vocation and that they want to save people and things like that. But, you know, when you're 16 and you're choosing your university course, I think a lot of us don't know um, what we want to do. So I would say it was very much accidental that I ended up being a doctor because um, I didn't have a clear vocation. I'm obviously very pleased that that's how things worked out for me because I think medicine is an amazing career. It offers something for everyone. If you like people, if you don't like people, if you like stories or, or if you like small scientific things, then you will find a place in it. What I actually always wanted to be when I was in school was a writer, actually. Um, but I do recall that my mother told me that, you know, writing was something you did after you had a proper job. You know, but that was after all the 1980s when people worried about paying mortgages and buying houses, which I suppose they do now, but particularly so then. I spent many, many years as a doctor before I revisited my love of writing and decided it was time to write a book. And being a doctor, I'm hearing stories all the time. So the obvious place to start was to write about my own patients. So a few years ago, I started writing about my experience of being a doctor and the things my patient told me and the things I learned from them. And um, I, I loved it. It just opened a whole new world up to me. And I'm now on my third book, which is The Sleeping Beauties, which began with a very, I'm really fascinated by psychosomatic conditions. I'm really fascinated by how we kind of ignore them and dismiss them and make mistakes about them and how misunderstood they are. And I read this amazing story on a BBC website about these children in Sweden who had fallen asleep into this condition called resignation syndrome, where they fell asleep for months and some of them even for years at a time. And all of their tests were normal and their brain scans said, they're not asleep, they're awake. So this was clearly a psychosomatic condition because it couldn't be explained by disease. And as a story, the more I learned about the story, the more I, I just saw examples of what happens to my patients is how hard it is for people to admit that psychological suffering leads to physical suffering. Because as I read about the story, I discovered all these children had tragic backgrounds. They all were from asylum-seeking families. What was happening to them, a condition called resignation syndrome, was intimately linked to the risk of being deported from Sweden, where they all lived. And I thought, well, here we are again, we're giving mystery names and medical names and we're medicalizing social suffering. And I thought, well, that's something I need to learn more about. And so The Sleeping Beauties was born. <laughs> yeah, and um, it's fantastic. Absolutely fascinating. It's something that interests me too. These girls, these young girls in Sweden, they were in that awful position of being threatened with being sent back yeah. uh, to terrible situations. Yeah. What happens is that, you know, the, the two girls I met um, originated from Syria and were asylum seekers in Sweden. And uh, they lived, they arrived in Sweden when they were sort of four or five years old. So, you know, they're, the when I met them, you know, was five or six years after that. The lives they knew in Sweden were the only lives that they knew. Um, and during the time that they've been in Sweden, their families were fighting for the right to stay. 
And then suddenly at the age of sort of 10 or 11, they're faced with the prospect of being deported. And they became overwhelmed by this thing that's called apathy, where they just gradually withdrew from normal life, you know, started out by not eating that much, not talking so much, not communicating until they get to the point where they go to bed, lie down, close their eyes and don't open them again. So I met these two little girls, one of whom, um, the 10 year old, was had been in bed for a year and a half without moving talking, interacting. She was kept alive with a feeding tube. Her mum did physiotherapy. Her sister, who was 11, had been like this for six months. And I suppose that what shocked me, I went to visit these girls with the expectation of being shocked by how sick they were, by the fact that they were being cared for at home, which is speaks to our neglect of psychological conditions and speaks to our neglect of people like who are forced immigrants or asylum seekers. I don't think we'd allow our own children to lie at home for a year and a half without active medical care. But actually, when I got to Sweden, something shocked me that I wasn't expecting, which was that everybody was talking about what brain scans they should do on these children to explain their problem. You know, what they wanted me as a neurologist to advise them on what chemicals in the brain were causing them to develop resignation syndrome. And I just felt like, surely everyone can see this as a social problem. You know, why do they want me to do a brain scan? You know, everyone should be arguing about the social circumstances that have come together to create this illness. And that was quite shocking to me because it reminded me from my own patients, well, why would they express their distress about psychological or social issues if nobody really cares about that aspect of things or if they're less sympathy? So it makes sense to express your distress through physical symptoms because people or have more sympathy for that. That's what was happening with these children. They could only express their distress in the most effective way, which was through physical symptoms. And even then people wanted to cure them with brain scans. So that was really where this whole sort of idea of trying to understand the social kind of political, cultural things that influence the way we express distress and how we interpret our bodily changes and how they shape what we call illness and what we don't call illness came about. I've now forgotten what question you asked me because I tend to... It doesn't matter because your answer is fascinating, really. So, uh, you know, and I think you articulated so well that, you know, what's screamingly obvious to you, because clearly you are a doctor that has the blinkers off and is looking at the whole picture. And I think you'll agree, not all doctors do that. By definition, when you're trained as a doctor, you're trained to specialise. And unfortunately, that specialisation can make it difficult for you to see the wood for the trees. Uh, And so you're focused on a symptom, obviously looking for a cause, but looking for the type of cause that you're trained to look for. So they expected appealing to you, you know, our children are behaving abnormally. And I'm waving those fingers, listeners, to indicate I'm saying that in inverted commas. They are behaving abnormally in an, if everything were normal, you know, if their lives were perfectly normal, but they're behaving in a context and it's the context that is key. And what I love about the book, I'm passionate about, you know, the relationship between the brain and behavior and the lack of understanding that people have of how the brain works and how it is a dynamic organ that influences our behavior, but is also influenced by our behavior. And it is looking for patterns and it is looking for cause and effect and it's looking for solutions. And it does that simply through trial and error. And so if those kids 
try speaking about their psychological issue and it gets no response. And as we often do with kids, we'll say, oh, don't be silly. Don't worry about that. This is an adult thing. Then, you know, if they try withdrawing and saying nothing, perhaps then attention, actually people start to pay attention. Of course, this is all unconscious. This is not happening in a conscious way. Their thinking part of the brain actually isn't doing this work. You have two parts of the brain, very important parts of the brain that are unconscious and unthinking, but they are absolutely trying to make sense and respond. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's it's always a risk, isn't it? The minute you start saying, well, this is a more effective way. The minute I said this is a more effective way of asking for help, it sounds to people as if there's something deliberate in this. But of course, the unconscious part of it is most important. But just um, coming back to a point you made a moment ago about um, doctors being so specialized. Yeah, you know, that's a problem because I think general practitioners are actually pretty good at this. Um, I think general practitioners get to know their patients and have more of a sense of the whole picture. But neurologists like myself, you know, someone can come to me with a headache and I'm well within my rights as a highly specialized doctor to just prove that they don't have a brain tumor or a serious brain disease and then just tell them, well, you don't have any of the things that I deal with and now you are free to go. Yeah, It's very, very easy for us to sort of just focus on one tiny little bit of the body and rule out our little thing and then discharge people. And that sees people fall between stools because they can't find anyone who can be responsible for their full care. But then coming to your second point about the sort of unconscious expectations, I mean, what's very likely happening in these children is that, you know, cultural models of illness, so what we call illness, are sort of programmed into our brains from childhood. You know, this happens to your body, it means this. And these sort of things happening to your body are acceptable. And these sort of things happening to your body are not acceptable. So some diseases obviously you know, um, objective and and nothing to do with anyone's opinion. If you if you have a particular type of cancer or diabetes, whether you believe you have it or you don't, it will make itself known. But there's also a whole range of illnesses that only exist because we say they're illnesses. Mm. Um, if we say that a certain level of sadness is depression, it becomes an illness. But another certain level of sadness is not depression. It's not an illness. And all of that is programmed in our brain. So I grew up with a lexicon of this change in my body is a disease and that change isn't. And that's what will have happened to these children. They also have expectations of what happens when you face deportation, you know, and your nervous system overwhelms you. You know, if your belief is that deportation can lead to resignation syndrome, then your body may fulfill that expectation. And it does so by, you know, if you're in a stressful situation, your physiological changes will occur. Your heart beats faster, your breathing changes, your skin changes. And and that happens to all of us. Um, Irrespective of the cause of the stress, we all get those same physical changes. But then what happens is if you happen to be someone who is aware of a condition called resignation syndrome and you feel those first changes, it's inevitable that you'll think, oh, well, I think that this first change could be the start of this. And then you start looking for the other symptoms that go with that diagnosis of your expectations. And the more you search for symptoms and look to see how your body will behave in a certain circumstance, the more that that can actually be played out. And obviously also paying attention to your body will heighten those physiological changes that started the whole thing in the first place. So it's a sort of a expectation that is inadvertently kind of played out. Your nervous system is overwhelmed by your expectations. And, you know, that happens to any of us. I mean, we've all just had, hopefully, vaccinations for COVID and 
you know, the minute you get a vaccination, I always think of it like when I actually, although I'm a doctor and I'm quite happy to inflict pain, I don't particularly like having it inflicted (laughs) on me. So when I see that needle coming to inject me, I'm already anticipating the pain. Yes. You know, and we've all had that experience where you start feeling the pain before they've even put the needle into your arm, you know, Mm. and there's so much, you know, you mentioned the sort of unconscious processes. I think we give our brains, we give ourselves too much credit. There's much more yes. going on at an unconscious level than at a conscious level. Um, we think we're completely in control of everything. Yeah, We're not. And I need to accept that. I say that all the time and I try to make it an empowering way. You know, we, we, whoever we are, which is really just, well, I believe we are our brains. It's just whatever our brain, the information our brain has taken from various sources, some from within, some from society, some from culture, some from the silly things that people said to us donkeys years ago. And your brain just aggregates all of that information. And that's who you think you are. You know, that is your concept. And I think that's empowering because you can change those bits of information and you can become something else. But I also think that we consciously, as you just said, we give ourselves our sense of self too much credit and too much work in a way and I think in there is a solution to some of these issues around um, stress and coping is that we don't give our brain the freedom to find the solutions to figure things out to make life easier for us because our brain can do that because it has access to lots of information from our lived life experience from books we've read from everything your brain has access to that your you know unconscious parts of your brain or that access can be reached while you're asleep and actually if we leave some of those stresses and some of those issues with our brain a solution can you know emerge but I think um, what is really interesting is, which your book really illustrates very, very well, is that there's a value system, certainly in Western society, that suggests that physical illnesses are somehow more valid than, um, and I'm loath to use the word psychological illnesses because I don't believe that any illness is, is one thing. It's the result of a confluence of multiple factors and effects. You know, I mean, we have evolutionary processes, we have genetic mm-hmm. uh, influences, and genetics aren't determinant, you know, because genes can be switched on and switched off by certain environmental factors. We have our upbringing. We have, you know, our sense of who we are. We have so many factors come into every equation in terms of how we might interpret a signal from our body. There's regular signals that a lot of people have forgotten to listen to. I frequently talk about loneliness as a signal, just the same as hunger is a signal to eat. Loneliness is a signal to get connected because we need connection as social creatures. But for some reason, we've placed a value judgment on loneliness and said, oh, that's not something that people actually should experience. But it is something that we just experience. I mean, every single emotion we experience is valid. You know, you have a thinking brain then to establish whether in this situation, this emotion is appropriate or not. And that appropriateness is determined by lots of factors, social factors, cultural factors, etc. But certain societies, and I can speak mainly about Western society, we have decided that some emotions are bad and some are good and some feelings are bad and some are good. So loneliness is somehow a bad negative feeling. Anger is a bad feeling. No, it's not. Anger is a feeling that can motivate you to action if something needs to be changed. If it's not dealt with, it may come out inappropriately and that's where it becomes problematic. But there's nothing wrong with um, that feeling in and of itself. I see a lot of people like to pathologize those things as well. So it's not just just, you know, that 
being a certain amount of anger or sadness has to be an illness or a disease that needs to be treated by a doctor. And But actually other cultures, I think Western medicine has quite a feeling of superiority on this kind yes. of subject. We think we write great journal pieces and we do brain scans on people and therefore our way is more scientific. Um, but actually, you know, other cultures often conceptualize disorders like the problems you're talking about, like anger or loneliness or sadness as situational rather than being about a personal psychological thing. And, and you know, that may very well be a much more um, realistic or a more um, better way of regarding it. It's less personal and it gives you an opportunity for change. Whereas I feel that, you know, I hear people now saying to me, oh, you know, my serotonin levels are low or, you know, so it's all got to be located in something that's nothing to do with you or your life or your decisions or the pressure you put on yourself. It's to do with your neurotransmitters and your hormones. But I think that approach, though, shows a lack of understanding of the brain. So people get a little bit of knowledge. I'm all for, you know, my dad always said a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. I'm all for having lots of knowledge. Um, And that's where the, the danger comes. So people talk about serotonin levels and they're absolutely right. They influence mood but they're not something that happen in a vacuum of your brain you know it doesn't just happen that your serotonin levels are low or your serotonin levels are high you have control over that you can go and take a run and it'll boost your serotonin levels you can smile and it'll boost your serotonin levels people sort of like to talk you know there's a bit of a, a problem between the idea of having kind of control and being blamed yes if you talk too much about a person's life or their life choices Um, as a doctor to a patient, that can be perceived as blaming someone's life choices for the situation in which they find themselves. Whereas I personally find those conversations useful because if my life choices are responsible for how I'm feeling, then I can change something. I think it's about control, but I understand that some people think it's about blaming. But, you know, you've got certain things you can change in your life and you know, it's it's helpful if rather than focusing on neurotransmitters, you focus on the things that you actually have within your grasp to change. I just want to jump into one of the stories and I, you know, it'd be nice to share a couple of the other stories. The one that I want to touch on is the girls in the boarding school. Yeah, so this is a, an incredible um, story that was told to me by an anthropologist. So this anthropologist went to work in Guyana where they had set up a boarding school system for children who lived in really remote areas. So there are some places in Guyana where it's just so remote that they can't really educate everyone equally. So for a long time, girls weren't getting the same level of education as boys. So they set up boarding schools so that girls could stay until school until the end, which obviously is is nothing but a, a positive change on the surface. And the anthropologist went to study the effect of the educational system um, on the community. But she hadn't been in the school very long when children, girls in particular, started disappearing from her class. Now, the first time it happened, she was told by the classmates that Granny had come for the girl. And she didn't really sort of understand what was happening, but was told by teachers that the girl had fallen ill and family had come and taken her back to their village. That was all fine when it was one girl, but then girl after girl started disappearing from the class. And this sort of granny took her, started taking on a kind of an ominous quality because it was repeatedly said. The anthropologist thought in the first instance that this was going to be something like malaria or a tropical illness. But as the community got to know her a little bit better, they revealed that these girls were having seizures. And what was happening at nighttime in the dormitories is that one girl would have a seizure and then the seizures would spread through the dormitory really quickly. And that the community attributed this illness to a spirit called Granny. 
So Granny was not a kind of kindly old matriarch of the family. Granny was a spirit that the community believed lived in the mountains that came to infect the girls, causing them to have seizures. And the only way that they could be cured would be if they were taken back to their villages to be removed from the influence of Granny. And that was the cure. Now, I think most of us sort of, if you live in Ireland, if you live in England, you hear a story about spirits coming down from mountains to, you know, it all sounds like very full of superstition. And it all sounds like something which is actually very unlike anything that would happen to us. I would have to say that I see young women in particular, but young people in general with seizures like this all the time, seizures that have a psychological cause. We just don't employ sort of explanations like granny. We employ explanations like viruses and toxins. We have our own set of explanations. Now, when I encountered that story first, I had all the same sort of prejudices that all Western medical people had. And in fact, the townspeople who were sort of torn between traditional forms of medicine and Western medicine had gone through the full range of medical tests that we would go through. And in fact, the community had even called in a psychologist to diagnose what was happening to the girls. And she diagnosed mass hysteria. And that really caused absolute ructions in the town because as you can imagine, that's perceived to be a pejorative diagnosis. And it really just alienated um, the young women from the psychologist and the medical community and really just reinforced the sickness rather than helping. But what I learned when I then listened to the anthropologist story more was how pejorative the whole reduction of this disorder to being one of the girls didn't want to be in school, they were stressed, they had seizures, so they should go home. And that was the cause of the mass hysteria. And that was a formulation that we used to explain that disorder. But actually, when you listen to the story much more completely, it was a much more subtle thing going on. And that's why listening to patients and understanding the subtleties is so important. Because if you just say you're stressed, that's why this is happening to you. People don't relate to that explanation. So first of all, these young women came from a, a very different um, social structure to ours. So traditionally in their communities, women stay at home. They don't learn the way we learn. So we learn by reading books and going to classes and hearing lectures. They learn by embodied learning. So they learn by proximity. So to give an example, if you're learning to cook through embodied learning, you're not given a recipe and you're not given instructions of how much of stuff to put in. You basically share the space with somebody and you learn by participating and being with somebody. Traditionally within these families, men went away and were the communities sort of um, linked to the outside world. Women stayed within the village, looked after the village, learned through embodied learning, and that was their sort of traditional role. By taking these young women and putting them into the boarding school and expecting them to learn in this didactic way, they had been removed from everything that was normal to them. Family connections were made through proximity, not through blood. So the person you live with is your family, not the person who's your kin by blood. So their family structure had been broken up, their systems of learning had been broken up, their social structure had been broken up, and they were being subjected to learning which neither suited their type of learning nor would ever be of any use to them in the future. What's more, they had a much more sort of holistic view of health. They don't believe that illness is something that kind of comes from within. They think it comes from the outside. So be it from a spirit causing you to get sick or um, something in the environment causing you to get sick. So it was very natural for them not to look for psychological 
causes, but to look for things outside themselves that would explain what was happening to them. So really what this sort of the sickness caused by granny was, it was a way of solving a social problem that made sense to that community. So that when the psychologist came in and just said, well, they're stressed, it's hysterical, and, you know, this is a psychological problem. It made no sense to this community at all because they did not think about health in that way. And it didn't take into account in any way their traditional ways of living their lives. And I've realized that for my patients, you know, because this is a doctor's training, I would often reduce things to psychological or stress, you know. And when you lose the nuance in a story, of course, you will end up with a lot of patients who, who think you're not listening to them because you you haven't understood what they're trying to tell you. Of course, as a psychologist, you know, you get more of a chance to hear the full range of a person's story. But as a medical doctor, you tend to hear symptoms and you lose all of the rest of the story. But it was lovely for me to go around lots of different communities and understand how much the sort of intricacies of their lives and the nuance in their stories mattered to what was happening to them. Yeah. And essentially, it's that thing as well that, and I hear it a lot from people when we're talking about brain fog, you know, those kind of symptoms and they go to the doctor and they're concerned because it's functional and it's mm-hmm. actually preventing them from carrying out their jobs and it's interfering with their relationships, etc. And they feel that they're not heard mm-hmm. by the doctor or, and then not being heard, maybe that, you know, they say, look, it's likely to be stress. Now, actually the doctor could be right. You know, yeah. it could be stress, but when it's that general term and when People, again, tend to think of stress as this sort of ephemeral thing or, you know, and also something external. But, you know, psychological stress will... And I feel I almost want to apologize for saying psychological stress because people then somehow think that that's not real, (laughs) but it's very real. (laughs) It is an issue with language. Oh, a huge. Yeah. I mean, stress is wrong in these instances, but it just what people understand by stress is just so kind of singular and so simple. Yeah. I think the problem is, again, it's language because stress, unfortunately, is used to describe the thing that stresses us. It's used to describe the physiological response to that threat. So I tend to try and, you know, say maybe that's the stressor or the threat if your physiological response, but you also have your psychological stress response, which kicks off the physiological one, whether there is an objective stressor or not. And that's irrelevant. The fact of the matter is the physiological response is kicked off and that can have a cascade of events that actually can ultimately manifest physical symptoms. Because if your immune system is lowered by chronic stress, you're going to catch every bug that's going or whatever. That's another thing that your book really touches on is the language of particular disciplines, medicine, etc. They're often taken to be real. And essentially, really, they're just set up as means to efficiently and effectively communicate a set of symptoms or something like that so that medical professions can talk to each other in a form of shorthand. But it doesn't mean that there's something concrete there. And I I think that's problematic. I see people who have seizures caused by dissociation and it all sounds very sort of something that happens to other people. And but all of these sort of things are just the normal And I think it's helpful to say this to patients. It's, you know, you said that sometimes it's all too much to cope with. And yes, we all get that. And we all dissociate. We all have moments when the mind just kind of wanders off and you can't take in a bit of information. So in a funny way, these are our protective mechanisms that uh, basically have gone awry. Um, And they're all physiological things that happen to all of us. 
Um, but I wish we didn't have to. You've apologised for the word psychological about three times during this conversation. Well, I didn't apologise. I said, I feel like I had apologised. <laughs> no, no, no. I will never apologise. But yeah. it's just, I, I suppose, because in the context of what we're discussing, no, that's what we talk over and over again in the book, yeah. like, is that sometimes it's like, you know, it comes from the doctors too, yeah. that somehow psychosomatic is made up. And you've said that repeatedly over the various different groups of people who experience these phenomena where when they were told it was psychosomatic, they said, I couldn't act. Why would they act that? Why would they act being asleep for a year and a half? No, they're not acting. This is not conscious behavior, but it's psychological behavior. Soma influencing the body. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, you really aren't. Yeah, we haven't touched the surface of their interested positions. But then there's a whole bunch of other people who the minute you say psychosomatic, they just, yes, they equate it with malingering. And people yes. still really struggling to understand the difference between malingering. They also struggle to understand the sort of, it, these things feel impossible to people. Um, it feels impossible that something, you know, that's purely part of your cognitive psychological mechanisms could stop you walking. But I just say to people, well, you know, you imagine if I asked you to walk a straight line on the ground, um, you would have no difficulty doing it. If I asked you to walk exactly the same straight line on top of a very high wall, the entire automatic nature of walking would be disrupted. And all I did was, you know, change your position. So it's, you really have to just think differently about your body for a moment and it changes what you do. And any, anyone who plays sports has said this, you know, you try to change something about the way you kick a ball or kick some, or hit something with a racket and the entire automatic motor system becomes unautomatic and you can lose the ability to do something you used to be able to do very easily. So yeah. I don't know why people find it so hard to believe these things are possible because I find that the tiniest change in something I do will have big physical effects and people just need to recognize it in themselves to appreciate how real it is. Well, I do think it's fundamentally, I say this over and over again, but like, I mean, you know, people are not educated about how their brain works. They just aren't. People don't know how their brain works. And because your brain is generally so brilliant, you don't need to think about it. And it's only when it begins to malfunction for various reasons. And lots of those reasons that cause malfunctioning of a brain are not sinister. You know, a couple of nights without sleep will cause it to malfunction, you know, chronic stress, mm -hmm. a poor diet, a lack of, you know, even omega-3 in your diet or a, a B12 deficiency, you know. Um, so so many things will actually cause your brain to malfunction in a way that can be quite scary. And I really think we do need sort of to, I suppose that's what I'm passionate about. We need to educate people about the brain. And you refer on and off in the book about the mind. And I suppose in a way you're saying similar to me, you know, that how unhelpful it can be. I find it so unhelpful that yeah. I just don't use it at all mm. because I think it's at the root of the problem because somehow it's ephemeral. Whereas yeah. I kind of feel if you just talk about the brain and behavior, we can link them and you have control with that. But we have centuries of language and you talk about the dualism that occurs. The conversation is always so problematic, isn't it? Because the minute you talk about the mind, yeah, you are into Descartes and sort of yeah. a spiritual mind flitting away from the body and things like that. Language is just so limiting for this subject and it's quite hard to be understood. I think that I have a slight problem with, in neurology, we're really moving towards talking about everything in terms of brains and connections between different parts of your brains and neurotransmitters and scan results. And I know that that sort of, moves you away from what you're expressing concern about, which is, yeah, this sort of what, what is the mind, this weird sort of hard to define thing. 
But I worry that neurology in particular is desperate to cleanse itself of all things psychological. So it's talking about psychological things, but only in terms of which brain bits activate and which brain bits um, light up on a scan when you feel a certain emotion or which neurotransmitter creates certain emotion. And you know, that's great in one way because it sort of allows people to understand this is a real biological thing that's happening. You know, there's a real biological thing happening in your brain every single time you feel something or something happens to you or, or you're thinking about chocolate. It doesn't matter what. But I worry that we are cleansing the humanity out of the discussion, that we're by always talking about focusing on the brain and trying to sort of um, avoid talking about the psychosocial aspect, that I think it can go too far. And that's back to what I was saying earlier, which is then you end up everything being an independent thing happening inside your head that's outside of your control, whereas the psychosocial aspect of things potentially are within your control. So I like to keep this sort of concept of the mind in the discussion, but it's very hard to talk about because... um, you constantly have to qualify and explain what you mean. So I don't, so I'm fascinated by the brain, but I don't put a full stop there, you see. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the relationship between the brain and behaviour. So yeah. I will always have brain and behaviour and behaviour occurs in a social cultural context yeah. and it has influenced both ways. So for me, when I talk about brain and behaviour, actually, and if you understand that, you know, obviously eating is a behaviour, walking is a behaviour, everything that we do is a behaviour, including thinking. And then I think if you refer to thinking as a behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, then that actually makes it easier not to have to invoke the concept of the mind. I think it's that people forget that thinking is a behavior and it's a behavior that can be changed. And it's a behavior that sometimes it's unconscious, you know, things come in, but you have conscious control over it. So you can change that behavior just the same as you can unconsciously pick up something to eat, but actually you can say, well, actually, no, that's not good for me to eat. I can change and work on changing that behavior. So I think that kind of helps, but it's interesting and it's fascinating. I think another thing that's really important and really emerges, um, I'm also jealous of all the traveling you did. I want to do another book that involves traveling. This can week. I come with you? Can we do, can we do a neurologist yeah, and a psychologist? Yeah, book? Yeah. Well, I highly recommend going to Kazakhstan. Or, I mean, because I got to travel to places with an interpreter who was oh. a local person. So you can imagine the view of place you got, which was so wildly different than you'd ever get as a tourist. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I want to say to people about reading this book. It is like life. It is enjoyable for multiple levels. And that's why this book, I, I really highly recommend it because because it has that, you know, you're going on a cultural journey um, you're traveling with you, you're learning with you, you're, you're writing. You really, really, really do have a real talent for writing because, you know, you don't get in the way of yourself. You take us there with you, which is really nice. And on top of that, then you have that metacognition, I suppose, where you're analyzing not only the situation that you're observing, you're analyzing it with the knowledge of a neurologist who's stepping back and actually being critical of your own discipline and observing it from multiple angles. And then you're actually analyzing your own behavior and saying, oh gosh, well, I thought this first and that. So it's an incredibly enjoyable read. It certainly could talk to you for multiple episodes episodes about so many things. And I'm trying to kind of uh, hop on and touch on a few bits of the things that really it raises, because I think the book raises 
very important issues. And I really think it should be recommended reading for doctors and for uh, medical students. I really do. There's so much you touch on. You talk about the diagnostic manual, which has gone through multiple iterations and additions. And, you know, folks, this is what psychiatrists and psychologists psychologists kind of refer to. And, you know, it has the criteria for when you might be diagnosed with depression or diagnosed with, you know, it'd be the thing that says must be existence for at least six months or whatever. It's very categorically based. And we all know that most, certainly when it comes to mental health issues, are dimensional and context dependent. It's very appropriate to feel depressed if you've become unemployed. But that doesn't mean you have to be depressed across your entire life. You can be depressed about that bit and still find joy. But because it's categorical, what can happen is it can force people to to believe that they must act depressed across all of their life and actually perpetuate uh, symptoms. Yeah, the minute you're labelled with something, I mean, obviously, there, you know, it's important that people understand that, you know, there are types of depression, the features of which, you know, severe depression are quite stable and are less necessarily sort of you know, when I talk about the variability of different presentations of depression, it's usually around the milder groups yes. where the controversy lies. But the minute your sadness is labelled as mild depression, it has that effect that you say, which is you start kind of acting out your expectations of what it means to be depressed unconsciously. Of unconsciously. It's really important to say that, yeah. that it is unconsciously. Perhaps if we say, and, and this is where language, I suppose, is important. Perhaps if we say you begin behaving mm-hmm. in a more depressed yeah. Fashion. You look out for the things that are associated, you know, like we all did it during the worst parts of the COVID pandemic. You know, if we got a slight feeling, woke up in the morning feeling tired. Now, I wake up in the morning feeling tired regularly. But for the first month of the first wave of the pandemic, when I woke up feeling tired, I examined myself for the sore throat and yeah. the cough and the fever. And, you know, so that once you have an expectation of illness, then you will start examining yourself and looking for other features of that disorder. It'll also affect how other people treat you and how other people respond to you. I have an issue with labels because mm-hmm. they create chronic illness. Once you're a person who suffers with depression, again, I'm doing that so people can't see me, but the air quotes <laughs> thing. So once you're said to suffer with depression, it, it can be quite a hard label to get rid of. It's always mm. sort of, you are a person who has depression. And I'm not sure it's great to conceptualize it that way. But on the other hand, the way you get help, you can't go to your doctor unless you've got an illness. Yeah, but we need the labels in order to access help and support uh, or to get permission to take time off from work. The labels are kind of useful then and therefore we take them on willingly. But then once we've taken them on, I worry about the long term effects of them. So we should have a system where a person can ask for help without having to take on a diagnostic label of a psychiatrist. And they, I, I think they should be also, or we should also be allowed to ask for answers without that answer having to be a diagnostic label. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I mean, my most recent book is called Beating Brain Fog. And I very make it very, very clear. I think it's one of the first things I say in the book is that brain fog is not a disease. It's not a diagnosis. It's not a disorder. But it is a signal that something's amiss. Hmm. And actually, your patient... Celia, was it? She um, had um, problems where she thought she was having epilepsy. Yeah, but she thought Sienna. she was having petty mal. Yeah. What was her name? Sienna. Sienna. But Sienna, to put this in short, Sienna, you know, was a teenager and she had accumulated a couple of diagnoses, POTS uh, being postural, orthostatic. Yes, yes. Basically, where if you stand up, it's like most of us will have experienced at some point you stand up too suddenly and feel dizzy. But this is in a much more severe fashion. But anyway, she was having these um, I would have called them attention lapses. And herself and her mum had definitely decided that they were petty mal. Um, and I suppose this was coming from having maybe read about absences as a form of epilepsy. And they'd been told, no, it wasn't. And they came to you and you did an awful lot of tests, etc. But for me, when, as I was listening to that, I was kind of going, well, she's just describing having difficulty focusing and struggling with kind of keeping up. And so she said she had a sleep disorder And I'm saying, well, if she's not getting enough sleep, that's going to lead to that during the daytime. If she's stressed, that's going to lead to that. And, and I think you touched on something very important there, although I don't think that you particularly used the word stress, that perhaps she had chosen a subject in her university degree that actually her mother, which I thought was very telling, had described her as this brilliant mm-hmm. girl student who was great at everything. And then she's in university and she's struggling to cope. Now, she's definitely having problems and they're very real. Yeah. This is the whole point. Mm-hmm. If you lose focus and attention, that's very real. If you can't remember things, that's very real and it's very debilitating. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something sinister like epilepsy. It can be very much lifestyle induced because you need to have good sleep. You said she had limited her diet because she had irritable bowel syndrome. You know, maybe she wasn't getting enough. I'm going to look at it from that psychological perspective. You were looking at it from a neurological perspective. I mean, I wouldn't look at it from a neurological perspective. I would think of it the way you think of it. Yeah. The problem is that I'm a neurologist, so people come to me for neurological explanations. But by the time someone comes to me, the GP and possibly a range of other doctors have already said the things that you're saying. Yeah. And people struggle to accept them because I think that we live in a society where, you know, if you're really clever in school and you're told that you should expect to get into university and that you'll be just as good in university and you'll be able to achieve things. And you know what? It just doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes we choose the wrong things and um, we're not as good at them as we thought we were, or perhaps it's just not suited to us. And I think that we have this sort of keep trying and you will eventually succeed. And anyone who's ever written a book will have been told about J.K. Rowling's multiple rejections before she finally got her book published. So we're told, even if you're rejected, just keep trying, keep trying. But you know what? 
that's making some people sick. Um, yeah. Because, you know, sometimes if the effort that goes into that success is too much, it can start producing physical symptoms like brain fog or like palpitations or like many other symptoms. And it can be a very difficult thing if you've got a family behind you saying you're definitely good enough for this course. Uh, it can be very difficult to say, do you know what, I don't think this course is right for me. You know, that can be a hard thing to say. And in that circumstances, the physical symptoms might be unconsciously employed to have that conversation for you. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it's, oh gosh, there's so many things going around in my head in terms because you raise so many kind of important issues is that um, that the ability, we, we seem to live in a society where it's too difficult to say maybe I was wrong. Yeah. I, I don't know what's wrong with society. I also think, you know, looking objectively at her mother, her mother was disempowering her and struck me very much like an Irish mother in a way. And something that we do with our children is we tend to ignore our children when they're behaving very well. And we notice them when they're misbehaving and give them attention when they're misbehaving. And so actually you can be reinforcing Mm. you know, the behavior. I suppose the point I was making with that girl's mother was that her mother was doing what a lot of us do when we see our children in distress, whether that's physical illness or whatever, we give them, we pour out all the love and attention we have. We make them feel extra special. Mm. And in fact, there's nothing wrong. Of course, we should look after our children when they're unwell, but it shouldn't become something that makes them feel extra special. Mm. They should just feel extra special for being who they are and being encouraged, you know, extra special. Isn't it great? You're well now and you're going to be able to play this, that and the other. But we do this thing where we train people to feel special when they're ill. And for some people, that can kind of become either not a way of life, but a way that they get mm. the attention or the support that they need, whereas they should be able to get that attention and support by just saying, you know what, I'm struggling with this or this isn't working out or I feel confused. And instead, actually, though, if they're sick and her mother had taken to actually feeding her. Yeah, it's always interesting, those relationships, isn't it? Because it's likely that there's both parties are benefiting in some way from that. Yeah, like a codependency. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sure that, you know, the mother was had the opportunity to care for a daughter in a way that you don't get to care for your adult children any longer. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a dynamic there that was very unhealthy. But people who would perhaps go to a psychologist would be very different to people who come to a neurologist. When you come to a neurologist with these sort of medical complaints, it's because you are not necessarily open to the more psychological way of explaining your symptoms and you specifically are looking for a more neurological problem. So I would see, you know, a skewed proportion of the community in which people are sort of really looking for biological ways of explaining yeah. rather than biopsychosocial ways of explaining their disorders. But the teen years, those years around sort of GCSEs, A-levels and the early years in university, that's when the vast majority of my patients who have things like seizures and paralysis and headaches, all that have a kind of psychosocial cause, they're the ages that they come to me. And I think it's the pressure we put on ourselves to succeed and the inability to just perhaps sit back and look and say, is there something in my life that if I changed it, that actually that might be the solution? I think I wrote in the book about hearing a woman on the news talking about being in a job she really hated and how unhappy she was and what a, a terrible, difficult life she had. And then she got a diagnosis 
of autism. Yes. Yes. And as a result of having got the diagnosis of autism, she realized that the life she chose for herself was the wrong one. So she ditched whatever job she was in and she found a job that was more suited to her and it transformed her life. So it it all ended very happily, but I just couldn't stop myself asking, why did she need a medical (laughs) diagnosis? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to look to society that, you know, arguably we live in a more permissive society than even when I was born, but we also have some of the social constraints are very damaging. And I couldn't help but think, first of all, can I ask you, are the more of your patients female? Yeah. Okay. I also think as well, and obviously we're talking about things like hysteria, which refers to, you know, the the womb. And there's all those terrible historic, you know, gosh, frontal lobotomies, all sorts of things done to women based on them not conforming to what society expects of them. And I think we are very good at learning from experience to a certain extent. But we have, particularly in Western society, we have a very ethnocentric viewpoint. We think of ourselves as the most advanced group of the species. I would argue that we've made an awful lot of mistakes, you know, moving away from community and isolating ourselves in boxes are at the core of many of our mental health issues. We're social creatures. We need to be in social groups and we need more of a a communal sort of basis that would help immensely. We'd notice things sooner if people are struggling as well, because you're seeing people more often and we can kind of offer help and support each other. I couldn't help but wonder when I'm thinking about all the different cases, with the exception of one, most of them were in young children or teens. Uh, The one case, guys, you have to read the book for this one is set in Havana. And it's interesting in that it shows how different a response was when this hysteria, for want of another word, involved inverted commas again, intelligent people working in the U.S. embassy in Havana. I mean, basically, it's an it's an ongoing story. So if you look in the news now, you will still hear this is ongoing. But it started in the American embassy in Havana, where the embassy had been closed for years um, because of the um, broken down relationship between the U.S. and Cuba. When the embassy opened up again, there was a lot of suspicion And a member of the intelligence agency heard a sudden noise one night and then started getting symptoms like dizziness and sickness. And someone, either him or someone he told this story to, and it might not even be a man because his identity is secret, is that this person thought they'd been attacked by a sonic weapon. And this story of embassy staff being attacked by sonic weapons spread through the embassy until there was sort of a dozen people who believed they had been attacked by a sonic weapon. Now, there's some very important, you know, medical points to make, which is sound doesn't damage the brain. So the other important point to make is no such thing as a sonic weapon has ever existed. Um, Also, there were many, you know, which I won't go into now, but many, many good reasons why these people were not attacked by a sonic weapon. And I think you could substitute sonic weapon for granny. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. But because a a reasonable proportion of these were men, but also, as you say, they're sort of well-off people, they live fortunate lives, they're educated. People just couldn't even consider this diagnosis of hysteria for them simply because they were the wrong sort of people. They weren't young women in in, in a sense. Really astonishing because I'd seen groups, say a school in upstate New York, where uh, there was an outbreak of what they called mass hysteria, mass psychogenic illness, a school in South America, um, a school in Guyana. When this problem affects young women, 
basically people say things about them like, and it's amazing in the in the 21st century, they say, well, they need a husband. And mm-hmm. it's astonishing. And they, they're they having too much sex or too little sex. Yeah, um, about a fight about a boyfriend or they yeah. will pick over their lives for little bits of stresses. But when this disorder affects kind of middle class, kind of fortunate men who work in the embassy in, in Havana, none of those conversations are had. Those questions aren't even asked. Could these men be stressed? You know, could this be to do with their lives as diplomats? Um, had they lived in dangerous places? You know, girls were constantly told, well, their parents are divorced or they had a fight with their dad. The diplomats, were they divorced? Well, we'll never know because when it came to men, no one even had that discussion. So it, it's absolutely true that women are not always treated very well by society and by medicine. And that in the case of the young women, um, people were very happy to accept the diagnosis, but presented in a really insulting, pejorative way. Mm-hmm. And in the case of men, they wouldn't accept the diagnosis purely because it was too pejorative for men. Yeah, and they still haven't accepted that diagnosis, you know. It's fascinating, actually, because recently they say that two people were attacked in the Marriott Hotel in London by the sonic weapon and that there was people attacked in the White House by the sonic weapon. A sonic weapon that absolutely everyone who knows anything about weapons or neurology says doesn't exist, but the story continues to carry on because it was much more acceptable to think that people were being attacked than to think that people are human and that these things happen. And people in the embassy were told, if you hear an odd noise, hide behind a wall, you know, you're being attacked by a sonic weapon. People were being asked to come forward for medical examinations, even if they didn't feel sick. They were actually yeah. being invited to examine them. To invited to be ill. And as you said, you set up the whole context and you can enjoy reading it in the book, really, in a sense. But these people were in a highly stressful situation that had a historical background. And as you just said, go back to March 2020 and we're seeing coronavirus everywhere. You know, we are under threat and our brain is just trying to protect us. Like it really is. It's doing its job perfectly. There is nothing wrong when a new virus that is deadly appears and could be, and we know very little about it. It makes perfect sense for your brain to wake up and go, have I sore throat? Am I okay? Am I feeling a bit too hot? That makes perfect sense because it is your brain in survival mode. And so, as you said, and I've experienced it myself, you know, when you're ill or if you're having pain, you do become heightened to that. I also think it's possible that some people experience sensations earlier or sooner than other people do. In other words, they're part of the tales. So, you know, if I press on your arm, you shouldn't experience pain. But actually some people absolutely do. And and that doesn't mean that they've something wrong with them. It just means that they're on the tail, same as you and I could try and score a goal and never be able to do it. And someone on the tail can just do it every single time. Doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. They're just on a different spectrum across it. And I know certainly I can bear a lot of pain, but sometimes I experience pain sooner than other people do. Now, I have a story. Your brain wants a story that makes sense for you. That's how your brain works. It tells itself stories that make sense. And because it's an information gathering machine and it is looking for patterns and looking for how to prevent that bad thing happening again or how to ensure that happening again. 
league. And it's literally just looking for patterns. And part of that process is telling stories. So I have a story that was told to me by a doctor, which works for me, which is that the calcium channels in my brain actually respond sooner than they might in somebody else. And and so I might perceive pain sooner. That works for me. I'm fine with that. It doesn't always happen. I perfectly understand that if I'm not getting enough sleep, if I'm chronically stressed, that those things are when I will feel pain. And that's actually in a way for me, I just see that that's a signal for me to kind of take stock and say, Sabina, you're falling into your normal tendency. And that's why these things, I think it's very annoying when people see some of those pain perception things as malingering. I'm quite the reverse. I work too much. So for me, it's a little wake up signal that says, actually, you've been letting your sleep suffer. You're being overstressed. You're taking on far too much. And your body is saying, hold on a second, I'm struggling here, you know, and you get a signal. So that's the way I work with that. And I always say I have a diagnosis of when I'm talking about some of the things I have, because I don't own them. Mm. I am not someone living with and some of the diagnoses, I'm not even sure they're right or they're they're accurate, but they allow me a common language to talk to other people who may be suffering or experiencing in that way to actually give them some tools through lifestyle changes that may actually help them to cope with. And I think something that you really touch on is this. And I suppose it's where the term hypochondria kind of comes from, is that and you talk about a girl who lost the ability to walk and you explain it so well Mm -hmm. that how in a psychosomatic illness you can lose the ability to walk. It's not pretending to be paralyzed. It is being unable to walk and having to relearn how to walk. It's well worth the read just to kind of understand how that can happen. I think the issue about women is very, very important. And I think women need to be empowered to say what they're feeling and look for answers, but not always just from doctors from within themselves, within their lifestyle. I think another thing you touch on that's really important is when I studied psychology, you had to take a couple of other subjects in the first year in case you failed psychology so that you could kind of continue your degree. And I took anthropology and philosophy. And I have to say anthropology probably is one of the most eye-opening subjects that anyone can take. And I really believe it should be taught in schools because it opens up your eyes to how our own culture, our own beliefs are as flawed as those that we look down on. And it offers us a way and a sense of being more empathetic. Yeah, it just allows you to see it from, you know, because I talked to a lot of um, anthropologists in in the writing of this book because they often had studied some of the phenomenon that I was trying to learn about. And it was just a really great way of learning how to see things from other people's perspective. Because, you know, I've spent my whole life working in Ireland and the UK and in big Western medical teaching hospitals. And you know what? That doesn't represent most of the world's view. I mean, Mm. most psychological and psychiatric research is done on Western educated people living in industrialized countries and mostly white people. But we then translate that research and we try and force it on other people which is not valid at all. No, and I'm always seeing medical papers that say things like, you know, um, African-American men don't think this way about depression and they should kind of thing. (laughs) It's sort of like they have a different way of viewing. I just randomly chose African-American men. I just mean people on whom this research was not done are being told that they should be adhering to our way of thinking, but their views were never represented at the start. But you see, I think you've touched on, and I did an episode on the podcast about this, you've touched on the essential flaw in psychology. Mm. 
all of psychological research that have influenced the majority of the accepted principles were all done on men. All done yeah, on men. That's right. All done on men. And actually, most medical research was done on men and continues to be done on men. And so therefore, from the outset, women are disadvantaged. We are considered less than, different from, instead of the norm. So the norm basically is calculated based on what is normal for a white male mm. and how a white male, if you take medicine, how a white male responds to this medication and how it works. So therefore, then women are described usually as and that that applies to us throughout society. Oh, she's a very aggressive woman or she, you know, whatever. But the point being, you know, if you want to reflect society, the findings of those studies should only be used to find and treat and report about men. Mm. The better thing is you include everybody, you know, males and females. And if they have to be just white Europeans, that's fine. But then you get your average across males and females and you look for differences if there are or whatever. But you can only then apply that to white Europeans in that group. You can't apply it elsewhere. And unfortunately, research investment is not invested in other places. And you touch on this again also in the book, because possibly there isn't the same amount of money to be made because we put so much faith in medications, things that we can take, injectables. We want that quick solution. And that's why I'm adamant in my book, because there's a multi-billion dollar industry in supplements to boost your brain health, to boost your memory function. There is absolutely no evidence that any of it works and you don't need any of it. Your brain, if you eat a healthy Mediterranean diet, gets all that it needs. But susceptible people are being screwed over. But at the same time, I kind of on the one hand think, oh, well, you know, there's that shop that's selling all that. I mean, around where I live now, there's so many new shops opening up to sell nothing but CBD products. And, you know, that's just a money-making industry, you know, and I, I don't support it. But then I have to step back and think, well, if it makes you feel better, then, you know, there's value in anything that makes a person feel better. But some of these supplements can be harmful. <laughs> oh, well, not if anything harmful. Or if people are being misled with, and I certainly yeah. think this happens with things like CBD, people are being misled with false kind of elevated claims of what is possible Um, And someone's making a lot of money out of misleading people into thinking that something is more medicinal than it is. But I did kind of at the end of this book start thinking, again, with reference to the lady who, with the diagnosis of autism, changed her career and was in a much happier place. I kind of started thinking at the end, you know, I started off sort of looking down on the need to medicalize, to make changes. But by the end of the book, I was sort of thinking, you know what, some problems are very hard to work through. And it may be that we need these processes um, and that we need sort of either expressing things physically or medicalizing. Sometimes we need those as a way to help us to make the change, which is otherwise very difficult to make. Yeah, no, I I totally hear you. I think it's perfectly valid. I think people need to be heard. And I think that's one thing that's problematic, particularly for women. An awful lot of women feel medically gaslit, you know, to use that modern term that somehow what they're going to their doctor with isn't real or doesn't exist. If people have taken the step to go and see you, there's something that's bothering them that that much. And, you know, if they've nowhere else to go, well, then you can kind of help. Of course, diagnosis help. They help for multiple reasons. You know, an awful lot of us can catastrophize, particularly when it's related to things like headache and cognitive function and things we don't understand, tremors, all those sorts of things. You know, you're going 
going to catastrophize and wonder whether there's something awful. But that should mean that I suppose the problem is, as you touched on earlier, you can say, I can find nothing. Uh, So then that makes the person feel awful because, okay, this sounds like that I'm imagining things. I'm not. And so I think there's a bridge there that's needed to say, look, there isn't anything on our known symptoms. That doesn't mean what you're not experiencing is, you know, so sort of find ways to do that. I think the important thing for me is, so there's there's no right or wrong, uh, but what you need to decide is, you know, is this diagnosis of depression or is this alternative therapy actually making you better? I think label can make you feel better just by having an explanation, but make you more disabled. But if you have a label that is giving you strategies to make your life a better life, then keep that label. But some people like Sienna, who we touched on, who is the girl who was basically just struggling with dissociation and attentional difficulties when her college course was too difficult, her label made her disabled because sort of she was promoted chronic illness through the label. So you just look at what you're doing. And if what you're doing is making your life a better quality life, stick with it as far as and, and I think when it comes to things like depression and anxiety and I think there's a it's great that we're talking more openly about mental health but I think there's also a tendency a worrying tendency where the label is being worn as a badge of honor and mm. becoming something to be proud of of course you shouldn't be ashamed of experience or living with depression or anxiety but it shouldn't be something that you necessarily go oh well this is me yeah. yeah you know and also I think yes you can be depressed. And again, we're talking on the earlier realm. I come from a family and people listening know this, you know, my father took to his bed. He had manic depression. He was suicidal. So I understand those depths. There was no communicating with him and that continued all his life. And it was very cyclical. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking and you are talking about the earlier realms where we're possibly medicalizing normal experiences because we've decided. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to get at was that our culture in some way is making us ill because it's telling us we should be happy all the time. We should all look beautiful. We should all have six packs. We should all be able to achieve everything we want. And you touched on that. And I firmly believe keep trying, keep trying, keep keep practicing. You can achieve what you want. However, it's also important to recognize that when that door keeps shutting, you turn and start looking somewhere else. Your ambitions should not be making you sick. Yeah, um, you know, and uh, I mean, it may it should be bringing you joy and the journey to that success. But I do want to touch on one thing that kept niggling at the back of my head uh, when I was reading this. And it's that group that are sort of predominantly absent in a way from the book, although there are a few cases. And that's teenage boys, boys of that same age. And what's worrying or what I wondered about and wondered whether you had any thought about. Certainly in Western society, we have a huge problem with teen suicide in young boys. And I just wonder whether You know, for me, for a lot of these manifestations, they occur at a time when for the brain or for the mind or for whatever you want to call it, there seems to be no other option. And there's almost like a withdrawing from life into this illness. And the parallel for me then in young boys and withdrawing from life into suicide because it's too painful. And again, a cultural and a social issue associated with that. With these issues, these things occurred with girls in groups. Girls tend to 
be more group based in yeah. a way where conversations happen. Boys may engage in sports, etc., but not in those conversations. I, I really don't know what I'm throwing out there, but I'm just wondering whether you've kind of thought about those. Well, I just I mean, I'm no expert at all in suicide or those particular issues, but certainly there is a case that men and women express their distress differently and that psychosomatic disorders are more common in women. And I think it is in part because of the place women are in society, but also there's more acceptability to women expressing their distress in certain ways where, you know, boys are not encouraged or allowed to express their distress in quite such an open way sometimes as, as women. And I think that that's why men and boys are more likely to be involved in violence. They're more likely mm-hmm. to hurt themselves. So it's really about how we express and deal with the emotional and troubling things in life. And men and women do it differently. And certainly at the moment, very detrimental for young men. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really, for me, the big lesson that comes out from this is that we do need to understand and acknowledge the transitional stage of those teen years when the brain is not fully developed it's a very confusing time very very confusing because you know there's connections that were there yesterday aren't there today things don't make sense the word is really strange you can't learn from mistakes in the same way that you do as a mature adult and I I think we need to support and acknowledge that more actually I had an odd experience when I was sort of going around the world was yeah I mean you and I both agree that you know this it's a difficult time Time for brain development and so, both socially and biologically yes teens are in a difficult situation but I was traveling around the world to places in South America North America Kazakhstan where I several times encountered people who when children were affected by um, psychosomatic disorders you know the parents or the older people in the family would say but why would a child develop a psychological problem like children are happy children I'm like (laughs) absolute peak time for it you know that's yeah 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 schizophrenia etc that's when they come out during that period oh absolutely and yes you know young children and I mean really young children are really vulnerable and you know the ages two to seven there's an awful lot of brain development going on there that if those kids aren't being stimulated if they're not learning how to respond appropriately to stress they can have you see the brain has this fabulous capacity to adapt neuroplasticity but unfortunately and that's what sort of struck me as well with Sienna your individual who now is in her late 20s and just continues to collect conditions that when your your brain has this incredible capacity to adapt to change and that is usually really really positive you grow new connections and all the rest but your brain is not infallible your brain makes mistakes it can make mistakes but what can happen is you can learn a maladaptive response and so your stress response can be completely maladaptive unhelpful and that can then be reinforced and and that just becomes inherent in your behavior and difficult to eradicate. I think it's useful actually to think about all these kind of psychosomatic conditions and things like that in terms of learning. Because it's exactly as you say, it's like we all accept that, you know, I can read a book, I can learn something, or I can get tennis lessons and learn how to play tennis, or we're all accepting that our brains are able to gradually accumulate new skills. Why is it so hard for us to believe that actually learning can go in the wrong direction too? Yes, when you lose the ability to walk for some psychosomatic reason, it's just the learning has gone the wrong way. And now you just need to retrain your body back into the, yeah. the right way again. And I do think it's useful to think of it that way because it get, we get away from that sort of airy fairy idea of, 
stress affecting the brain in some sort of hard to explain way. Yeah, no. So that's what that's exactly where I come from is, you know, that's the fundamental capacity. Our our brains are highly responsive to experience. Mm. You know, neuroplasticity, it's not unique to humans. It exists in other animals. That's how animals learn and evolve and develop. But the human brain seems to be particularly susceptible to environment and experience. But as you said, it can go wrong. Things can be unlearned and relearned. And I think that's really, really very empowering. Mm. And I think it's fundamentally down to people just not understanding how humans work. (laughs) Yeah. That's what it comes down to. You've been absolutely fascinating to talk to. Uh, I'm sure my listeners will absolutely love every minute of it. The book is called Sleeping Beauties by Suzanne O'Sullivan. Tell us what the name of your other two books are. My first book is called It's All in Your Head, which is basically just about my own patients with functional and psychosomatic disorders. And the second book is Brainstorm, which is supposed to teach you about the brain through the stories of people with epilepsy. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And I do love that because often people say, and I I think it's very funny um, that people often say, you know, they made out it's all in my head. And I'm kind of going, but everything is in your head. (laughs) I know. I got in trouble for that title because the point is everything is in your head, but still people. That's the point. I get that. I think that's exactly, you know, validate. Continue. Please do continue doing what you're doing because I think as well as being really interesting to read from all sorts of angles, I think the books are very impactful. And I think that they'll help a lot of people. But any doctors listening, get other doctors to read it, because I think they're one of the groups of people that actually really, really need to read it. Based on your writings and your experiences as a neurologist, what tip would you give to people about surviving and thriving in life? Perhaps if they are experiencing what may be psychosomatic illnesses, what tip would you give them? I think it's a very difficult thing to do, but I think recognize when the life you've chosen for yourself isn't necessarily the right life and be prepared to make changes. We touched on it um, before, but you know, we, we make decisions about our lives when we're like 16, 17, 18, and then, you know, 40 years later, we're still working with those same decisions. So I think, you know, be prepared to say, you know, is this the right life for me and change it if you think it isn't. Such sage advice from Suzanne. You've only got one life and it's silly to waste it pursuing a path that fails to satisfy or even makes you ill. You can change direction and in doing so may find joy, happiness and reward. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Superbrain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.